Hi, I'm Elena Becker, and this is P.S., the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking with members of our community about their Puget Sound experiences. Today, we're recording from Moonyard Studio in Tacoma, Washington, and our guest is Lenora Yee, a junior from Alameda, California. Lenora, good morning. Good morning, Elena. (laughs) I had kind of a generic opening question all teed up for you, but then when you were coming in and sitting down, you took one look around and said, I'm a musician, so this is really cool. (laughs) And now that's what I want to talk to you about. So will you tell me just a little bit about your musical background and what is it about walking into a space like this? I know people can't see this, but we are in a jam-packed studio that (laughs) uh, makes your eyes light up. Um, Yeah, well, I've always loved music. I've probably sang since I was like four years old. Um, I never had any classical vocal training until I came to UPS. Um, But something I've always loved is just uh, all things music related. When I was little, I used to mix music on my own, not very effectively, but I had a lot of fun with GarageBand. On a computer? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, on on GarageBand, right, just with my voice. Um, And I took... Uh, I played percussion from 6th grade to 12th grade in band, and I taught myself ukulele after I had one of my first concussions. It was kind of an unfortunate circumstance, but I taught myself ukulele, and (laughs) I love ukulele, and I've always loved singing and songwriting. Um, And so music has just always been a big part of my life in in a couple different ways. And I took piano, I think, from when I was about 7 years old to about 13, and I continued playing and using it as a source for um, songwriting. Is your family musical, or did this just sort of like, this was your thing and it just happened out of the blue? Um, My mom has always loved singing um, on the down low, and (laughs) my dad is very rhythmic. He's from the tropics, so like rhythm, he always like jokes and is like, this like in your bones, it's in your body. (laughs) Um, But he's not, I wouldn't say an instrumentalist musician, but is someone who definitely appreciates music and rhythm. Um, And... Yeah, I just, I took piano lessons kind of as an obligatory youthful thing to do. My sister did also, (laughs) and she did band, and I did band. Um, But I definitely have come to really appreciate music, through percussion especially, Um, how rhythm works and how music works with rhythm really helped me with my songwriting. And I'm also a writer, so it kind of fed into those two things. And when you came to college and you did start to study classical music, vocals, what's the right thing to say about what you study? Um, Yeah, well, I... It's definitely very classically oriented. A lot of the music program is centered around um, classical music, um, opera mm-hmm. in particular for vocals, in addition to musical theater. Um, I was definitely out of my element for sure coming here, yeah. and I didn't really anticipate getting admitted into the School of Music. Mm. It was definitely kind of like a pleasant surprise. Because you you auditioned. I did. Yeah. I auditioned originally just thinking about a music scholarship, and then I was admitted to the school of music as a vocal minor and that was really unexpected and super exciting something I did not anticipate um, and it also has just been very transformative vocally to have an yeah. opportunity to study voice um, and kind of open my voice in a way I'd never done before um, can you say a little more about what you mean when you say open your voice yeah I mean I mean kind of literally like figuring out like what mechanics go behind oh um, opening your vocal track to more effectively produce sound, but also just feeling comfortable performing. Um, As part of the vocal department, you do juries each semester, so you prepare three pieces. One is always in a language other than English, Mm. and one is a musical theater piece, and the other two are classical pieces, typically from um, long ago. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's definitely been something. And also I'm an acapella, so um, singing and being more comfortable performing because I've always been very self-conscious with my music and it's always been a very personal part of myself but I love sharing it with other people Um, and I sang in church a lot Mm. when I was younger so that kind of acclimated me to singing in front of more people Um, but never really just for myself so it's been a very 
really special to see how much support I've been receiving here um, for my own musical endeavors and also in choir and in the School of Music. And just from the way that you described that just now, I take it that that was not really what you were expecting when you wandered into your audition for the School of Music. Yeah, I definitely was just like, oh, I can maybe have a scholarship. And uh, the the audition process was definitely... um, different because I didn't have an accompanist and that was something most people have when you're a vocalist you usually have an accompanist and I've learned that like I would never do an audition without an accompanist now after going through the school of music but I didn't have an accompanist I also brought my ukulele and I I sang two pieces I didn't really know what an aria was I like Mm -hmm. had to google it I was like (laughs) I don't know what these requirements are um and then I ended up singing two pieces that I did actually when I was um, in Austria during Mm. my high school experience. I went through the Lions Club, which is kind of like Rotary. Okay. And through that, I had learned these two pieces that I sang. And then I also sang an original song um, and something. They saw something in me and I'm really thankful because I've been able to really grow as a musician and as a vocalist here. And it's been really special. How much did the existence of the School of Music and then your subsequent admission to the School of Music play a factor in you deciding to come here to Puget Sound? It was it was a big factor. Yeah, I mean, I think the largest factor was probably um, well, it was I think it was a combination of things. It was like the financial aid that I received, mm-hmm. the interdisciplinary approaches, but the being admitted to the School of Music was one of those things that I didn't really have at another small university, right. and I didn't really anticipate that to even be a possibility. Um, my mom was like, "You could have gone anywhere you wanted through music." But I was like, I don't really know if that's the case. Um, so I I was definitely surprised, um, but in a good way. And I felt really lucky to have that opportunity um, because, as I learned, the School of Music is very prestigious and rigorous. And um, the, the talent that is in the School of Music is absolutely astounding. So it's very humbling to be a part of the program. And in addition to your music minor, you also have two majors. So you are a living, breathing example of one of the questions that I get asked like probably more than any other question by prospective students, which is, can I? Do- is it possible to double major? Is it possible to have a major and a minor? And here you are with two majors and a minor. So I'll leave it to you to say whether or not it's possible. Um, it definitely is possible. I don't know if I'd really recommend doing exactly what I have done, just because I've definitely overextended myself in all the areas I've been mm-hmm. interested in. Um, my English major was something that I always knew I wanted to do. Spanish. Um, I spoke Spanish when I was little, and I knew I wanted to keep speaking Spanish and I wanted to go abroad and doing a major in Spanish ended up kind of being easy like oh just two more credits after you return from abroad kind of a situation right so that sort of has just fallen into place um so I would say it's definitely possible and easy and I think that our curriculum our core curriculum and our university does a really good job of fostering a lot of different courses and interdisciplinary values that encourage students to take courses outside of their own major so a lot of students end up kind of doing those things. I also think what you just described about your Spanish major is another like fairly usual occurrence, which is that someone ends up accidentally majoring or accidentally minoring in something and not because you wouldn't have sought it out, but it's just like, oh, I really like Spanish. I'm taking a lot of classes in the Spanish department. I went abroad to a Spanish speaking country. Suddenly I realize I'm like two classes away. Right. Or I think maybe even a little more commonly is, um, you know, I, I'm really interested in politics. It's not my major, but I have professors I really like in the department. I keep taking classes from them. And suddenly it's like, well, if I took this political theory class, I'd have a minor, right? Because minors are so often five classes that sort of finding your way to, oh, I really liked this and I was just taking classes, but now I get this institutional check mark from it happens to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. And I think that 
the combination of courses that I'm taking and the combination of majors and my minor, my minor just happens to be quite intense and lengthy. And most minors are not like that. Right. And so depending on what department you're in, it's really easy. Oftentimes, I know people that are like, oh, I can graduate early. I have two minors and one major. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Like for <laughs> me, my departments just don't overlap and they have really specific requirements. Right. And that's kind of unusual. I think for the most part, it's quite easy to do that um, and quite possible to do that. And if you don't, then you can just take more fun classes mm -hmm. and have maybe free time. Like, wow, what a concept. <laughs> That's something you could have if you wanted. Um, so I, I definitely think it's, it's easy. And I don't know, it's a great opportunity to sort of be rewarded for your interests. I also, speaking of interests, want to make sure to talk to you about your English major, because you just now said very confidently, I knew I wanted to major in English. I think that there, well, before I even ask a question, tell me about your confidence about wanting to major in English. How did, how and when did you know? Um, well, at first, I didn't necessarily think that that was my definite major when I was applying to other universities, yeah. larger universities. Um, that was the track I would have gone into just because of my test scores and my interests. Mm -hmm. I would have sort of been pushed into the humanities, which is interesting because now I'm in the humanities. Um, right. but I didn't want to be pushed into the humanities. I wanted to take science classes and yeah. I wanted to have opportunity to do that. Um, but I definitely think that for me, creative writing, um, analytical writing, analyzing texts has always been a strength of mine. Um, articulating my ideas, thinking about words in a way that are transformative and powerful has been something that's fascinating mm -hmm. to me. And so having the chance to do a creative writing emphasis, which is what I'm doing, um, and working on creative writing specifically has been something that I was pulled into. And I adored uh, my first semester seminar, which is through the affiliate department, the mm -hmm. English department. So I kind of knew I sort of wanted to sort of dip my toes in the water of the English department early on. Yeah. And so that was definitely me sort of doing that. And through that, I was like, I think I do want to do an English major. Um, it can help me in so many fields and being able to write and read and communicate well and effectively is applicable to a lot of different professions. And I also was thinking, oh, maybe grad school, like eventually. So I, I knew I wanted to continue that. And you just said something that I think is so important, which is that part of for you, the value of an English major was understanding how to work with the power of words. I think that English oftentimes is one of the most stereotyped areas of study that there is. I think a lot of times people conceive of English or English majors as a really passive degree or a passive course of study, right? Oh, if you like to read, you're an English major. And then what you do as an English major is you sit and you read books and maybe you think thoughts about them and that's it. I will go out on a limb and say that the summer research project that you were doing this summer has something to say about people who think about English that way. Yeah, I mean, my summer research project is literally about um, written word as a form of activism. And if you want to know just a little bit more about what exactly I looked at in that process was focusing on a various different women of color collectives through the 1970s to 2018, so post-civil rights era. Um, and something that I really wanted to focus on through that process was the ways in which writing has transformed um, throughout time, but also the way in which collective voices are um, utilized mm -hmm. and also brought up and brought to light through written words throughout time. So I decided to focus on a couple different specific collectives um, even though I read so many primary sources throughout mm -hmm. the research process. And I, I wanted to really understand and compare the way either uh, 
a collective or a collective of voices was utilized in different forms and how alternative press specifically is utilized as a site for marginalized voices and marginalized communities to Mm -hmm. speak um, on behalf of their experiences in a way that isn't censored and limited. And that was something that I think is powerful through written word and through this whole print subculture that exists from zines to manifestos to um, alternative print companies, which is something that I looked at as well. Um, Kitchen Table Women of Color Press was one Mm -hmm. of the collectives that I looked at. Um, that is an alternative press company, but how that is that laid a foundation for communities to continue um, connecting with others, regardless of specific and intricate um, heritage or backgrounds that exist. Can you give an example from your research? Can you describe a little bit one of the instances where you saw that happening? Uh, the connection between different different yes, areas. Please. Yeah. Um, something that I found really interesting was this book that I looked at called Hashtag Not Your Princess, Voices of Native American Women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a book that was published in 2018 that is an anthology of voices from um, indigenous North American women and First Nation women. Um, and this book sort of epitomizes and embodies the ways in which alternative press functions as valuing alternative voices and valuing um, a collection of of people, not necessarily one perspective, and kind of coalescing to form this really powerful work. It was so similar to me to so many of the alternative newspapers that I was looking at. Mm -hmm. So I also looked at ALOEC, which is Asian Lesbians of the East Coast, in their publication newsletter, um, something quite and that's similar. contemporary? No, that was actually in the 70s, 80s. In the 70s and 80s. Yes. Okay. So um, I, th- I believe that that group actually formed later in the 80s, um, so after the 70s. But yeah. it was it was quite interesting to see how similar yet different these two forms were. And this is, of course, an actual print book um, rather than an alternative newspaper. Right. But it's sort of embodied the kind of ideas of a zine as being kind of anti-establishment, as critical to um, our structured society, as something that really encouraged uh, creative voices and creative um, representation of experiences through poetry and written word, um, through hand-drawn images, and through prose. And so I thought those kind of strands throughout all the different generations that I looked at were very prevalent in really bringing out voices. Hi, I'm Tori Hansen, Assistant Director of Admission at Puget Sound, working with students in the Mid-Atlantic and in the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as all of our transfer students. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can learn even more about Puget Sound by coming to campus. Schedule your visit at pugetsound.edu visit. We'd love to host you. that I'm wondering about in listening to you describe your project is that I think most people would agree that institutions and like institutional approval convey some credibility. If you are published by a major publishing house, that feels different whether or not it should than if you self-publish a novel. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that sort of social zeitgeist around that idea of institutions conveying credibility manifests in these cases where a lot of the spaces where these voices are being expressed and are being heard are not through traditional institutional channels. Does that to you or were you finding that that makes them more powerful, less powerful, more meaningful, less meaningful? How does that come into play? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think to a, gr- to a degree, a lot of that comes down to what the speaker or author values. Mm. And, and in a lot of ways, these speakers are... 
women who have not had a space to voice their opinions in mainstream media, um, communities that have been historically and um, continue to be marginalized in, in discussions and in academic discourse. And I think the whole purpose of carving a very purposeful space for these voices to occupy mm-hmm. since they have been omitted from so much of history is very valuable and very powerful and empowering. And it not only validates the voices of communities and and of histories, but it also allows others in the future to know that their voices are are supposed to be heard and they're not something that should be omitted from history. And it's not that they haven't existed, but they just haven't been um, emphasized Mm -hmm. or even focused on. So I think that by stemming away from the specificity and limitations of mainstream media and academic discourse allows one to see the existence of um, resistant voices that exist through alternative press. Do you notice there being a longitudinal change to that around the time that the internet really comes on the scene where suddenly those spaces that are being created are broadly accessible rather than, well, we have a geographic limit to how far we can distribute this physical newspaper or this flyer, but suddenly anybody who has the right combination of keywords can access and see and participate in this conversation. Does that change things? Yeah, that's very interesting because something I looked at, though, wasn't the focus of my research project, was how digital or digitized mediums has um, influence the ways in which alternative press, like with quotations around press, right. has functioned. Um, but interestingly enough, a lot of zine distributions and other international modes of communication remain very... They, they still really appreciate and value physical copies hmm. of zines, and that's something that I think has been really interesting to see within the zine community. Yeah. Um, but through like the internet or PDFs, it remains more accessible to anyone who has access right. to online platforms or in the internet, and it broadens the space for marginalized voices. So maybe some of those people that didn't have access to um, a space to have a consciousness-raising group mm-hmm. of of women um, to talk about their experiences being marginalized or different spaces in larger geographic areas that functioned as um, collective spaces to have really powerful conversations, how that has kind of changed and functions now on a lot of online platforms platforms, I would say that definitely has sort of shifted, even though some of the main values remain the same. That is really interesting. And it's interesting to me to think about the idea that physical, I mean, again, I guess I'll use your phrase of physical press in quotation marks, still matters, right? And that that still carries a different weight and is a different experience necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something unique about zines. And I think the actual product of my my research mm-hmm. is um, a zine. Mm. I made my own zine um, kind of analyzing a lot of different of the a couple groups that I focused on. Um, and so to me, it's, it's a powerful way to show how regardless of who you are, um, maybe you can't even find the voice of the person who wrote this scene. Maybe you can, maybe it's connected to a larger collective. It's still significant of it in itself existing and influencing someone else. Where did the idea for your research project come from? W- way back last year when you were m- pitching the proposal, mm. why do this work? Um, for me, this has always been really important to me. And I think the idea was planted in my first my first uh, semester here, my seminar, um, the teacher of my seminar, Professor Deathly, is actually my advisor. Um, we worked 
very closely on, with a lot of texts that were pretty formative and some texts that I actually revisited for this project. We read a lot of Baldwin. Um, mm-hmm. We read um, This Bridge Called My Back, which I also revisited. What um, was the title of that work? This Bridge Called My Back. It's an anthology of writings by radical women of color. Okay. And it's been sort of, they have a couple different editions, but it was published around that same time and edited um, by some very incredible women of color during the 70s and 80s and still remains a formative text for a lot of different radical thinkers or people that are interested in understanding um, personal narratives as radical teachings. I also want to make sure in this, I was thinking about this because of the collectives that we were talking about earlier, but that I have a chance to ask you about something significant that you're involved with on campus. So you are the president and co-founder of the Coalition of Multiracial and Biracial Students at Puget Sound. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about that. Um, this space for me has been really incredible. So I myself, I'm multiracial and coming to the school, I um, kind of explored different spaces and was able to find meaning in a lot of them. But I felt like I wasn't able to really nurture the more holistic idea of identity. Mm. Um, and my friend and I in um, the Posse Plus retreat that happened um, after my first year here, we were in affinity groups. And all of a sudden I was in this affinity group with a bunch of people that identified as multiracial. And that is that was never anything I knew could happen or could exist. And there was a strong sense of solidarity within this small group of students and faculty members. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it would be so special to create a space like this on campus because it doesn't exist currently. And I think it had in the past. Yeah. Yeah. It had in the past, but it hadn't continued through other years. So the following semester kind of went through the process of creating a club. And there was a lot of students that reacted so like warmly and they were so excited um, to have a space like this forming on campus. It was obviously needed. Um, And for me, it's been a space for community and also discussion um, and affirmation for students of all different ethnic backgrounds. And that has been really powerful to have multicultural, multi-ethnic students come and talk about their experiences. And you might have just said this and I missed it, but when did that get off the ground? What semester? Um, This began just last year. Last year. Yeah. And even in the time since it started, it sounds from what you just said, like you've seen people really lean into it. Like this has been something that there's been a community that wants and values and benefits from on campus. Yeah, I would definitely think so. And I think that at our school, it can sometimes be hard to have a space that's just for you that you feel like you can be your entire self with Mm -hmm. or talk about maybe a stressful situation you had in a course or um, difficulty acclimating to a new surrounding, a new Mm -hmm. geographic area um, and more and having a safe space to sort of explore those ideas. So I definitely think that it it has benefited a lot of students and it makes me really excited to see um, just other students that are younger than me excited to sort of continue it because that's something we wanted to create a space that would be sustainable after we graduated. Right. Yeah, because that is sometimes an issue with student-led organizations is the people who are the engines of it graduate and move on and you do want to make sure that there's, especially for something that is turning out to have so much meaning for so many people, that there's an engine still there. Exactly. Yeah. We conclude all of our conversations by asking everybody the same four questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) The first question is, what's the best place on campus? Um, One of my favorite spots on campus is the fourth floor of Wyatt at the edge of the hallway with all the professor's offices are. Mm -hmm. There's floor to ceiling windows. um, And it's a great place to study. And also just it has the greatest view of campus. You can see everything from there. What are you reading right now? I'm currently reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Mm. What's the best place to eat in Tacoma? 
Um, it kind of depends on what you're craving. I would say <laughs> in walking distance, I think Cook's Tavern is always like a good go-to. They do a good early bird breakfast. They do. I love the, the cleanup on aisle 13, I think is called. I don't remember the aisle number, but yeah, yeah they do some <laughs> breakfast called cleanup really on good. aisle, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but get there early. So. And lastly, Lenora, what for you makes Puget Sound special? Um, definitely all the people I've been able to connect with. Um, for me, that's something that has really kept me here and given me a lot of um, strength throughout any difficulties is the people in all different spaces that I've had the privilege of knowing and talking to. It really enriches a learning experience to know that you have so many supportive people around you. Lenore Yi, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S. The Puget Sound Podcast. Podcast.